0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 244 with Caroline Webb. I think you'll really enjoy this chat with Caroline because she has so much data-driven backing research behind what she's up to and you'll hear it from her and just what went into writing her book and and coming to the insights she's come to. And they are so practical, powerful for use every day at work and not at work. So you'll learn one, the power of micro-mindfulness, two, pro tips for maintaining focus and motivation, and three, the best ways to keep up your energy throughout the day. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at com slash 244. And while you're at awesome at I encourage you to check out some of our cool stuff. One thing I'd point you to today is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. So, this is an actionable compilation and bite sized tidbits of some of the stuff I share in my enhanced thinking and collaboration training programs, which in the before and after evaluations tends to slash about, on average, 86 minutes of wasted time per person per week, which can really add up. So, hopefully, you get a nice Taste of that right from the lessons in your own inbox at the awesomeatyourjob.com, 10 days to winning at work email course. Now, here's Caroline's story. Caroline Webb is CEO of 7Shift, a firm that shows people how to use insights from behavioral science to improve their working life. Her book on that topic, How to Have a Good Day, is being published in 16 language in more than 60 countries. She's also a senior advisor to McKinsey & Company, where she was previously a partner. Here is Caroline. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, I think we'd have a lot of fun and run out of time far too soon is my prediction, because uh, I enjoy so much of what you have to share. But for starters, I'd like to get your perspective on... So you did the consulting thing. You were at McKinsey. And now you are, are working in this space talking about cognitive behavioral science and neuroscience and, and the good stuff that plays into effectiveness. So I'd love to hear in your own brain, how does sort of the strategy consulting thought process translate into what you're doing now? Well
1: like a lot of people when you go into consulting you think maybe you'll be there for a couple of years but actually I really found my thing at McKinsey and my thing was actually behavioral change work so I was there for 12 years doing this kind of work where I'm helping people be at their best sometimes it's a whole company sometimes it's a team sometimes it's an individual and I think really in many ways I kind of grew up there I definitely honed my style and figured out you know what it was that I could do to be most helpful in this space and and I got an amazing opportunity to work with so many different types of organizations that uh, it was really a beautiful path for 12 years. There came a point where I was ready to have a bit more of a portfolio life so that, you know, I had more writing and speaking and, uh, and so on in the mix. And so that was the reason that I left five and a half years ago. But it was a very formative experience. I will say, actually, the first career that I had through the 90s as an economist also shaped me. I'm sure that's true for everybody, you know, even when you do different types of work over your life. There's something that you get from every job that you've had that you carry forward that makes you better and stronger at what you do next.
0: Absolutely. Well, and I'd love to get your take. I remember one of my first exposures to economics, it was my mom. She was taking some night classes to become the next uh, CEO of the teacher's credit union in Danville, Illinois, where I grew up. And I remember she was explaining to me these things called uh, utility functions for people. Uh, And I thought, wow, that's really interesting how do they figure out what a person's utility function is? And how could I know mine? And how could I optimize it? Were my immediate questions as a child. (laughs) And it became clear that it was was pretty kind of, I didn't use the, I didn't know the word optimize yet, but I was like, I want the most of it. I
1: was thinking very precocious child.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So here you are working in the space of economics and then now here, the world of behavior. So Tell me, the utility function, is it all bunk or can I make any good practical use of that?
1: reason I was interested in economics was because I had actually always wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be an astrophysicist, actually. Uh, I wanted to work for NASA. But then I took an economics class and I thought, wow, this is a sort of head explodes moment. I didn't realise you could be rigorous and scientific about human stuff. And really, at that point, I thought, no, this is actually what what I want to do. I want to focus on human performance and potential and and being structured and thoughtful about how to help people maximise that. And so, I was absolutely interested in this idea of the utility function, which, for those who haven't done Economics 101, is essentially saying, what are the things that you value and you care about? What are the things that you get utility or use or or, uh, pleasure or value from? And I was actually a... Pretty grumpy economist for most of my 20s because a lot of what was going on in economics was saying that everybody was basically perfect maximizers of their financial situation and nothing else really mattered. And the behavioral revolution hadn't really broken across a lot of the economics discipline in my 20s. And that was one of the reasons I decided to go into consulting because I really wanted to get closer to the human side, the messiness. What is it that we really care about day to day? What is it that really allows us at the end of the day to feel like yeah that was great and money yes we need money but it's also about relationships and connections it's also about feeling purposeful that you're spending time on the right things and that you feel good about what you're achieving and and that you feel like you've got the I don't know the internal resources to handle whatever comes your way and you know that is what we value. That is in our utility function. And so I will say that the years of consulting and coaching really took me closer and closer to to the work I most love that I'm doing now.
0: Understood. Excellent. And so I guess my snarkiness with regard to utility functions is when... No,
1: I'm with you on that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) ...where they're so pristinely quantified, like it's equal to U to the third power minus two U, And so I was so intrigued and I guess naive because like, well, that'd be so cool to know that it's like how do they measure someone's experience of goodness do they it get like a blood sample well maybe you could open us up there it's like
1: i think that's a good segue because i will say that actually the thing that i took from all of those years working as a, an economist in public policy was that you could be rigorous about human stuff and i was fascinated by the growing body of research that was Coming together on behavioral economics and actually explaining the real stuff, like how do we actually behave? And then got very interested in behavioral neuroscience and behavioral psychology and did some additional training in those fields and got certified as a coach and really started to use the evidence base from behavioral science as a foundation for the work that I was doing with individuals and teams and and organizations. And I found over time that, first of all, there is really solid research that points to how we can feel better about every day and what we achieve at work and a lot of it isn't getting translated into everyday advice that we can all take easily. And so I th- became so fascinated by the fact that just using a little bit of, of insight on how the brain works would really help my clients see how it might help them to try something new and how they set up their day or how they handle the meeting or how they organize their to do list. And so over time, it became kind of my thing to use behavioral science and to be really rigorous and grounded in that way. So, to the extent that we can can quantify this stuff. I think that I have really kind of taken a position where I am saying there's a lot of really great research and evidence around this stuff. And wouldn't it be amazing if we all knew a little bit more about it because we could all be you know, happier and more productive if we did. And that's what my work is all about.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And much of this is synthesized in your book, How to Have a Good Day. Yes. Could you orient us a bit to that in terms of the key theme or central message?
1: Yeah. So, the central message is really that we have a lot more control than we think. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we assume day to day we have to just put up with other people's moods or boundaries set by other people or the way that situations seem to play out around us and so on. Obviously, it is true that there is luck involved. If your boss turns up and he or she's in a cranky mood, <laughs> there's a limit to how much you can control that. Mm-hmm. But what I've become interested in is the fact that actually research points to small things that we can do that have an actually disproportionate impact on how both we feel and actually how the people around us are able to perform and, and behave. And so that's the message of that we have a lot more control than we think and tiny, tiny shifts going to have a big, big impact. And I'm very pragmatic because all your listeners we're all busy we've all got a ton of stuff to do and we often buy books and mean to read them and then we don't because we don't have time and so I really wanted to think about what is the simplest way that someone could build these ideas into their lives without being annoyingly directive about this is what you must do at 8am because everyone's different but what is the principle that people can apply in their own lives. So it's super practical. That was really what I was trying to get to was not just another think piece or, you know, not just full of stories. It's got research and it's got stories, but it's really, really practical. So yeah, it's my labor of love. It's my, my life's work.
0: <laughs> well, oh, fantastic. Well, I'm eager to dig into things. And so I've got a number of areas I want to explore. But first things first, just to make sure we don't somehow miss the golden egg, those things that have a disproportionate impact. Can you share with us maybe the top one or two super leveraged things that you think folks who want to have great days often really should do right off the bat? You yeah, know
1: that's a really cruel question. Cause yeah, there are about a hundred in the book, <laughs> and everybody's different. So I did write the book so that you could dive in at any point. If you've got a difficult conversation, you can turn to chapter nine and read the chapter on managing tensions and so on. So that is a tough question. I can tell you some of the things that I love that I use uh, for myself all the time. I can say that uh, there's one very existential one and there's one very practical one. So one very existential one is that uh, we actually only perceive part of what's around us at any given time, and we don't know that because, we're not aware of what we don't know. Your brain can only process a certain amount of information at any given time. We've actually got quite a lot of control over what we tend to see and hear in a situation. And the rule that our brains follow is that whatever's already top of mind for us, it will take that as a signal that we should see or hear things that relate to that. So you get out of bed on the bad side, wrong side of the bed, as our grandmothers might have once said, and suddenly everybody is incredibly annoying. Actually, what's happening is your brain is using this mechanism of selective attention to say, well, you're in a bad mood, Caroline. So I guess I'll make sure that you see every instance of everyone being a really big pain in the backside today. And the thing is, it works the other way around, too. So if you decide to look out for signs of collaboration in a meeting you're not looking forward to, you are radically more likely to see them because you've told your brain that that's what's important. And that's the science behind a lot of la-la kind of advice about, you know, just put a smile on your face and everything will be great the truth is that's not true <laughs> mm-hmm. you know sometimes some days are just not great or some meetings that are not great or some colleagues are not great but the truth is that we can see more of the good stuff that's around us that we tend to miss because our brain just uses this selective attention mechanism that's pretty deep because it does mean that the reality that you experience is way more in your control than you think it is and you know that's something which means that every morning i tend to sort of set intentions and say okay well what is it i want to look out for today what is it that i really want to prioritize? If there's anything difficult coming up, how do I want to go into that? And then the the super practical thing that I might mention is single tasking. So as well as your brain only being able to consciously process a certain amount of information at any given time, it can actually also do one thing consciously at any time, only one thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, as you're checking your email and browsing and flicking through something on your desk, you are actually asking your brain to switch from one thing to another. And it's really tiring and it uses up time and mental energy so when we multitask we feel super busy but we're actually slowing ourselves down we're making between two and four times as many mistakes so you know one of the biggest things you can do to kind of get your work done more quickly and do it more brilliantly is actually to do one thing at a time you know some of this again sounds like our grandmother's advice right but mm-hmm. the truth is that the science now is very clear on this so i'm really clear that if i want to think clearly and i want to do good work and i'm struggling with something i have to close down all of browser tabs and you know shut everything off and really kind of give myself give my brain a chance to do what it actually is able to do which is to do one thing at a time
0: Oh, okay thank you well, so i want to dig in a bit deeper here when it comes to whatever's top of mind the rest of the stuff you encounter filters through that and that includes your mood and it really is kind of fascinating for me and sometimes i will wake up and i really do want to like sing with joy <laughs> at, at the, <laughs> the beginning of a new day it's like some sort of a disney animation situation like birds are chirping or, or something like sometimes i really do wake up like that and other times for no good reason you know, I, I wake up you know, sleeping less than i would have liked to and i can't quite fall back asleep it's like well I guess it's 4:30 and I had kind of planned to sleep till 7, but I guess we're done now. <laughs> and so then as a result yeah. I'm kind of a little bit grumpier about any number of things. And so I'm curious like when you're in that moment what is the go-to approach to kind of grab the steering wheel and point your focus and your mood to where you want it to be.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean exactly that. It's a question of noticing your state of mind and knowing that your starting point is going to color what you see. You'll know this in a sense because, you know, if you've ever bought a new car, You'll see every car on the road that's the same mm-hmm. model. If you've ever decided to boldly wear a new colour to work and you's, you kind of feel a bit self conscious and it's very top of mind for you, then you'll see everybody who wears anything that's that colour all day. So we know that what's top of mind shapes what our brain decides to perceive and what it, it doesn't, what it decides, you know, is not relevant enough for you to notice consciously. And it gives us a hint that actually it's not that hard to redirect. Uh, and to reset our filters, actually. It really does take just noticing where you're at and saying, what do I want to notice? What do I actually most want to notice? That's my go-to question. I actually have um, a little... I mean, I use alliteration to remember like, what is my aim, what assumptions am I making, and what's my attitude? So if I, want, if I have a little bit more time, then I actually think about it in a more structured way and I say, okay, what really matters most to me? What's my real aim here? Because if you drift into a conversation you're not looking forward to, the person's perhaps been a bit of a joke to you in the past, you are going to see everything that confirms that they are a jerk. I mean, confirmation bias is one example of this larger phenomenon. Mm. And so they might be a jerk, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, the thing is, if you decide, okay, well, my real aim here is not to prove myself right that they're a jerk, but actually to get something, to find some way that we can kind of, I don't know, collaborate, I used that word earlier on, then you are more likely to see that. If you check your attitude and say, okay, I can't just say, right, Pete, now I'm going to be super happy. (laughs) You can't necessarily just click your fingers, but you can say, okay, what is there that I can think about today? That I'm looking forward to and just have that top of mind and that's going to shape them what you see. And then in terms of your assumptions, yeah, what you assume about someone is going to, going to totally shape what you perceive. And you can't always again say, you know, sometimes you have assumptions about someone being a jerk because, you know, you've actually seen them be a jerk in the past, right? So I'm not saying your assumptions are wrong, but you can say, why might that not be true today? <laughs> and then you give yourself just a chance to widen the aperture of your perception to see a bit more than you would otherwise and it doesn't have to take a lot your hand can be on the handle as you're going into a meeting a conversation you can say okay what do i really want to notice here you notice in the middle of a conversation that's going south that is going south and you're feeling annoyed you can catch yourself take a breath and you feel your feet on the floor and just say okay what is it i really want here what is my real aim knowing that that will actually have an effect on what happens. It's like choose your own adventure. We're all at any given time choosing our own adventure by what we decide to have top of mind.
0: Caroline, it's funny that you bring up that take a breath, put both your feet on the floor. That was exactly the mechanism I stumbled in to calm myself down when I was a candidate doing case interviews to get a debate. And so I'm curious, is there some behavioral science behind that particular practice? Because it seems like we've both settled in on that one.
1: Oh sure, the evidence around mindfulness is really mounting and is really compelling. And mindfulness is essentially that practice of pausing, focusing your attention on one thing, and not beating yourself up if your attention drifts. And that's really what's at the heart of meditation practices and mindfulness practices of all sorts. And the thing is that a lot of people have heard of mindfulness or have heard of meditation, and you know maybe they tried to meditate for twenty minutes and it just felt so hard and so far from where they're at I've always been really interested in I suppose what I call micro mindfulness like what what are the tiny moments of mindfulness that that still seem to have an effect on the way that we feel and the way that we think and I've made it a a mission of mine to dig out the research over the years that shows that smaller and smaller amounts of mindfulness still actually have an impact on your ability to regulate your emotions that stay calm that is and to think clearly about complex topics. And actually, I mean, side, sidebar, I've done the same with exercise. I've, I've made it a mission to find all the research that shows that smaller and smaller amounts of exercise will boost your mood and, and your focus. I am so I'm really into the practicality of this.
0: Three seconds will do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the smallest amount of mindfulness that you can do, absolutely. Take one breath. Notice you, one breath put your feet on the floor, bring your attention to that. It doesn't have to be a lot to give you a bit of the bigger benefits that more mindfulness will give you. And so I use that that sort of thing
0: a lot in busy, difficult days. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, so then now I'd like to sort of think through when it comes to so those high leverage points that, that make the disproportionate difference I read a lot about how the environment that we're in has a world of influence on our little thoughts, decisions, behaviors, and what becomes relatively easier or harder. And we do uh, more of or or less of those things. So what are your pro tips for molding our environment to set us up for success?
1: Yeah. The thing you want to know here is that um, your brain is an associative machine. Uh, You kind of know that already in that one idea is linked to another and it's stored in your brain as a memory you you hear a song that reminds you of an amazing night out with your friends or maybe the night you met your loved one and it gives you a boost and that is the memory of a song being connected being associated with a certain mental state a certain emotional state and that's the way that our brain works. And so if you associate a certain thing with another thing, then exposing yourself to the cue has a reasonable chance of triggering the state of mind that you associate with that cue. And the thing is, it's just helpful to be aware of what your cues are and what your associations are. We're not all the same. So this is definitely an area in science which is um, a little bit fraught at the moment because a lot of people have said, if you give people a hot drink, then that makes them feel warm and therefore they behave in a warm way towards people. And there's a study, a very famous study that was done that was showing that. And I remember always thinking, well, what about in the Middle East, you know, where it's really hot? Maybe Maybe a chill drink would actually make you feel good. And you know how does that really work? So the trick here is to really understand yourself and your associations. So I <laughs> I put in the book something which has been quoted back to me so many times that I almost, almost regret it. But there was a song uh, that Donna Summer sang called I Feel Love. And I associated it with a show that was uh, done by the Blue Man Group that I saw years ago. And it was the finale and it was so great I was so loving the show and it was amazing and I was super excited by you know the the artistry and the magic of the you know the production and so after that it became my song for before I go on stage to give a speech I don't always make people play it as I come on but it's just the the song that I you know hum to myself in the bathroom before I go on and it triggers that sort of that association in my mind. It may not do that for you. <laughs> but isn't it interesting to think about, well, what are the things that you associate with, I don't know, high performance or whatever you're trying to create? So I think a lot about my office and I think about, you know, I know light is really, really important to me and it kind of brightens my mood to actually turn on a light. Last week, I was doing a workshop with a top team, a senior team at, um, at a charity a non-profit and i was paying a lot of attention to the room and the environment i was playing music when they came in i actually borrowed a space heater to make sure that the place felt warm and um, i made sure that there were snacks so it felt welcoming and kind of nurturing it, so i think we just can think a lot more about our environment and think and know that it actually does have an impact on our ability to think and be at our best
0: oh and i really feel that i think also with clutter it's interesting i'm not sort of of a super neat freak, but I do really feel and notice how much better I feel in a tidy, organized environment as opposed to a cluttered one. And yet I somehow seem to keep seesawing between the two as opposed to having consistent (laughs) tidiness.
1: Yeah, and that is a, a, is a beautiful example of how you want to know yourself because there are some people who will say, Oh my God, I hate a clinical environment. It makes me really hard for me to be creative. I don't know how you could possibly have a clear desk. So it really is important for you to know yourself and to think, Okay, well, what is it that's going to really help me be at my best? Because it's not always going to be the same. I had to take a guess last week in the workshop with those folks because I know that food, warmth, and music are kind of universal human things. But when you get to the finer, details actually you really just need to know yourself and think about okay if i want to be super productive what do i know what do i associate with being super productive maybe it's you know being in a particular place booking a particular seat to go and sit and so on so you know
0: yeah it's really it's really interesting when you start to think about it well and and i guess i've been a little bit cautious i don't know if this is scientifically valid or not so caroline you'll set me straight once and for all when it comes to these cues and the triggers i guess sometimes i'm worried that I might sort of, I don't know, use it up, if you will. So for example, (laughs) let's just say that the Eye of the Tiger is a pump-up song. And so if I am feeling sleepy and I think, you know what, I want to get pumped up. You know, I should listen to Eye of the Tiger. And then I do that dozens of times. Do I risk weakening the power of the Eye of the Tiger song cue because I keep playing it when I'm sleepy and I desire to be pumped up? It's
1: interesting. That's a really great question. What's at the heart of what you're saying is absolutely right, that if you start to associate Eye of the Tiger with feeling tired, then it may actually lose its power for you. I mean, in general, what we know is that the more that you repeat a connection, the stronger that connection gets. I mean, that's effectively the mechanism that sits behind learning. It's the strengthening of the the synapses between different neurons that relate to different cues and different activities, different thoughts and so on. And so, what you want to be aware of is just notice the effect on you, right? I mean, if it's no longer, if it's no longer working, to rethink. And I think, you know, you're very smart to say, you know, actually, you change over time, we evolve as human beings, and the associations we have change. And if I started to associate, I feel love with, if I were a terrible public speaker, and I, you know, associated, I feel love with feeling awful on stage, that would probably not be great. But as it is, I love speaking, and it gives me such energy. And I, you know, really adore it. So the positive connection is still there.
0: (laughs) And this is bringing me back to a little bit of my teenage years in which Tony Robbins was my hero, fun fact, as a teenager. And I know he's big on associations, whether it's a yes or a power move or touching one finger to another. Is it possible to make connections between kind of abstract or or neutral cues so that you make them mean something for you by being in a particular state of mind and then doing or saying or experiencing that which you desire to be a trigger cue oh
1: sure absolutely you're in control of your own mind if you want to associate this thing with that thing then absolutely it's in your gift this is why rituals are so powerful right i mean rituals on the face of it usually look a bit dumb but if they mean something to you and it helps you feel a certain way, then go for it. I remember there was one time I was in a I was in a taxi, I was on my way to a concert I was actually singing in, so I was quite focused on the fact that i was about to perform Mm -hmm. and i didn't really want to be having a big in-depth conversation with it with the driver at that particular i'm quite a chatty person but that was not what i wanted Mm -hmm. but anyway never mind we were having the conversation and he was asking me what i do and i told him about the book and he said oh you know what you should issue a pebble with every book I was like, oh, my God, what? And he said that whenever he has something that he's working on for himself personally, he has a pebble in his pocket. And so whenever he feels the pebble, it reminds him of the thing that he's working on. And that is an example of someone just deciding, okay, this is going to be my cue. It doesn't matter. As long as it works for you, then it's valid. And the truth is there's no point me issuing a pebble with the book because pebbles might not do it for you. (laughs) But I do encourage people to think about what is the thing that's going to remind you of the stuff that you genuinely want to do for yourself and to, to be smart about putting those things around you.
0: Oh, that's good. And I'm already sort of brainstorming, like maybe it could be putting your phone upside down or the opposite way of what would be an intuitive means of picking up your phone. And it's like, why is my phone upside down? Oh, because I want to remember to focus on this thing.
1: And, you know, it doesn't have to be too artful either. Mm -hmm. It can be something as simple as just having a post-it note. I mean, when I was writing the book, it was a kind of big undertaking to try and summarize all of neuroscience and psychology and behavioral economics and cover everything that anyone needed and make a kind of general book. About how to have a good day. And sometimes, you know, I did think, oh my God, what have I done? Well, you know, I can see why nobody's done this before. <laughs> and so, to help me stay focused and motivated, I had a post it note which reminded me of the reader and the person who was going to use this. And it, it just had the name of three clients this is for Sarah, for Nyan, for Peter. And that was my thing that I went back to time and again. I didn't have to come up with an object to remind me of that. I just, you know, had that written on a post-it note visible in a way that I could go back to when I needed to. And, you know, it goes back to the fact that our attention is really the currency of our lives. And we don't have an infinite amount of it. In fact, we have a very limited amount of conscious attention. And we can choose where to put it. And being smart about what is it that's gonna remind you of where you wanna put it. That's a large part of the game of figuring out how to be at your best and how to have a good
0: day. Oh, this is so good. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a little bit when it comes to energy, to keeping the levels high and, and available? Because I think for me, that's another variable that makes all the difference day to day in terms of some days are higher than others on the energy factor. And and those days result in way more great output than the opposite. So what could we do to to get more good days there? Well,
1: there's a sort of motherly thing to say, first of all, I suppose, which is that it is true (laughs) that getting enough sleep is probably the single biggest thing that any of us could do to live our best lives you know the research is really really powerful on this that you know the vast majority of us need eight hours um, maybe a little less maybe a little more and that when we don't get it we really see our analytical capability slip so you know your ability to solve puzzles and perform on tests and so on you can measure this and your ability to regulate your emotions there's that phrase again that behavioral scientists often use which is just to stay on an even keel when things happen that, that isn't great and that's quite apart from just your physical energy and your ability to just keep going and so it really does matter to think about what it would take to prioritize that a bit more and um, it's you know one of the single biggest things you can do The other sort of motherly thing to say, I suppose, is that energy, we do associate it with perhaps, you know, physical activity. And there's no doubt that, you know, when we're more energetic, we feel more like exercising, but it goes the other way too. It really helps to figure out how can I get between 10 and 20 minutes of just slightly raised heart rate uh, knowing that that will then boost your sense of energy, both, you know, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally after that. And, you know, so I'm really thoughtful about how do I get just that little bit of exercise into the day, even when I'm feeling a bit tired and then there's a bunch of stuff which is just so interesting about how you boost your mental and emotional energy even on days which are really dragging you down a couple that i really like it turns out that showing gratitude is really a powerful way of boosting uh boosting your mental and emotional energy and it's actually quite a long lasting intervention as well and i like to do that at the end of a day to sit and say okay what were the good things that happened today and sometimes it's quite hard because it was not a great day mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not uh you know sometimes there are things that are just you know it's a really tough day but as soon as you start to think about what were the good things it's again it's focusing your attention you start to see the good things more readily and you start to remember things you would otherwise have forgotten and i sit on the couch with my husband and we do that at the end of the day and it, it's uh it's a really powerful intervention and then generosity That's the other thing that I think is so fascinating, because when you feel worn down, it's sort of counterintuitive that, Mm -hmm. you know, being nice to someone else would give you a boost. But actually, it's really, really reliable. And you kind of know this, like, you you know, someone stops you on the street to ask for directions. And for some reason, you decide today you're actually going to stop and Help them. You feel amazing. You feel <laughs> you feel so fantastic about your kind of bounteousness and your ability to give. And it's a very interesting little quirk to think about. How can I do something nice for someone else? How can I pay a compliment that's totally unexpected? And to then notice how it gives you a boost. Never mind them. I mean, it's nice for them too.
0: <laughs> oh, fantastic! Thank you. So you mentioned that you had the research on the smallest amount of mindfulness or the smallest amount of exercise. And, and so there you have it, 10 to 20 minutes of a slightly raised heart rate. So you just mean like walking would make a huge difference.
1: Yeah, exactly. Huge fan of walking. And I think it's not always easy to get to the gym. In fact, actually I've given up on gym memberships. I. I bought an elliptical trainer years ago. It was really, it was really bad elliptical trainer, I will say. And it was in a sale, Uh, but it was all I needed. I just had it close by and so I could jump on that. And so anytime I was getting a bit stuck on something or I was noticing I was a bit cranky, then I would get on that and just you know pedal away for sometimes as little as 10 minutes and then i would notice my head clearing and an insight coming and you know the research is really clear on that being that being an effect of a small amount of cardiovascular exercise but yeah i mean the other thing that i do a lot is walk going to a meeting just figuring out what would it take for me to just walk this meeting walk to this meeting or walk to this appointment and I kind of have a rule that if it's if it's less than half an hour, it's very rare if you take public transportation or you drive that you can get anywhere major within, you know, 20 minutes or so. It's usually 20 to 30 minutes, at least where I live in New York. And so if it's less than 30 minutes walk, I will walk. I will take the walk. And, you know, I've just gotten into the habit of doing that. And sometimes it's just 10 minutes and then it's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah so I'm really, really looking out all the time for these tiny little opportunities, taking the stairs rather than the elevator if it's less than five floors, you know that sort of thing, uh, or less than three floors, depending on how much how energetic I'm feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Well, Caroline, now could you share with us maybe we got the energy locked in, but that's not always the same thing as motivation. Mm-hmm. so uh, what's your take on ways to get and stay motivated when you're just not feeling it?
1: Yeah. It happens to us all, doesn't it? I have a lot of things that I throw at this and I'll share a couple of my favorites. I mean, one thing that we know is that we know that purpose, feeling a sense of purpose, feeling that what we're doing has a point to it is inherently motivating. And then you say, well, okay, but the whole point is that what I'm doing seems useless. So I don't feel motivated to do it. Um, so there's a first step just to say, okay, well, It's very rare that anything you're doing is truly, truly, truly pointless. Like, what is it that actually is going to result? What good thing is going to result of you doing this thing? And you sometimes have to push through a few layers of snark (laughs) to get to something that actually feels good. But it really is sort of worth just, again, refocusing your attention on, okay, what is the ultimate payoff maybe it's not to you maybe it's to someone else but what is the the real benefit of getting this done and if the payoff is to someone else then the payoff effectively to you is to make them feel good and to actually do something useful for them and it really helps me to really picture it being done at the end of the day so if I'm really struggling with something I've been procrastinating on then what you're really trying to do is get your brain to put more weight on the future benefit that is going to result from you doing the work. And to have that offset the feeling of the immediate cost of getting something done. Your brain's not very good at thinking about abstract future things. It's very good at focusing on the stuff that's right in front of it. And so if something is just a bit difficult to get done, maybe it's an email you're putting off writing. I'm sure everybody has one of those. You're really focused on the fact that you don't want to write this email. And it's much harder to think about all the the relationship benefit that's going to flow from you actually getting it done. So really just picturing, okay, well, how great is it going to feel when I've done this? How great is it going to be for the other person who's not going to be waiting anymore on this email? That really helps. And the other thing that helps is actually the other side of the equation, which is not just amplifying your sense of the benefits, the future benefits of getting it done, but actually reducing the feeling of the initial cost of putting in the effort. And... What do I mean by that? I mean, often there's something we're putting off because it just feels too hard or too complicated. We actually don't know the way in and keep on coming back to the thing on the to-do list because it just seems like so much of a pain. So I'm a big fan of asking, what's the smallest, very, very smallest first step you could take to get this task on the road? It could be, so maybe this email you've been putting off, I mean, I can't guess what email you're putting off, but you know, if I think about an email that I'm putting off, I've got to decide on whether I'm going to do a particular piece of client work or not. And I keep on not being sure whether this is going to be the right piece of work for me, you know, whether I'm going to be the right person for them. And so I keep on not answering. Um, I will say, you know, I'm not being kind of completely egregious about this. I did tell them that I wouldn't get back to them for a few weeks. But you know, the thing that's getting in the way is that I know that there's someone who knows a bit more about that client and I haven't emailed her to ask her. And that's the simple first step that I could take is just to drop her a line and say, Hey, you know, can we chat? I just want to talk this through with you and see whether you think this is a good fit, both sides. So I did that and it was great. You know, she wrote right back and now I'm having that conversation tomorrow. And then I know that I'll be in a position to write the more difficult email. And so the small first step, the tiny, tiny first step, sometimes you have to really think, well, what is it that's actually blocking this? And what is the first tiny thing I could do that is so small, I can't argue that I can't do it.
0: (laughs) Oh, I love it. That reminds me of uh, of David Allen, episode 15, in terms of zeroing in on the next action. And when it's like so dead dirt simple you feel just silly like yeah of course i could do that that's fine then, there you are
1: yeah and i'm i'm such a big fan of the, the ridiculously small steps that you obviously can do
0: <laughs> mm, excellent well caroline tell me is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things well
1: i don't think so i hope i'm giving a a bit of a sense of the kind of work that I do and how practical it is. I mean, I will say that the work that I do is really, it leaves people space to figure out how to apply this stuff in their own lives. And I'm really pragmatic about about that, you know, and I'm I'm always really delighted to hear people's stories about how they're using these principles and these ideas in their own lives because there are so many different ways of applying them. Uh, so, if any of your listeners happen to look at the book or try any of these ideas out, I'd love to hear how they work for you and what exactly you're doing with them.
0: You know, one of the best ways to have a good day every day is if you're in a job that fits you, and if you'll recall. Scott Anthony Barlow from episode 181. We chatted there about how to use the strengths you already have to get hired for a job you love. If you know that there's more out there for you than your current job, Happen to Your Career helps you figure out your perfect fit and provides the roadmap to begin and complete that journey. It just doesn't work the way you think it does. If you're interested in career change, check out Scott's free eight-day video course to get started today. Visit happentoyourcareer.com slash awesome8day. That's the number eight. D-A-Y to get the free course sent to your inbox. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And what would be the best place to contact you for that?
1: Well, I've got a website, which is carolineweb.co. That is .co, not .com, actually, because it turns out there are millions of Caroline Webs in the and i did not get carolineweb.com but carolineweb.co has all sorts of resources and contact details and so on and i'm also on facebook caroline web author and on twitter uh, caroline underscore web underscore every day sharing nuggets of science-based advice and uh, i'm active on both and respond to all, everybody on, on both of those platforms
0: oh perfect thank you well now could you share with us a favorite quote something you find inspiring
1: Quote that I used right at the beginning of my book, which is something that I, actually a lot of people have glummed onto. I just love it. It's from Annie Dillard in uh, her book *The Writing Life*, and she says, "The way we spend our days is, of course, the way we spend our lives." And it's just this beautiful sort of sense of actually what we do every day really is—it's the building blocks of our lives—and. If we can get those things right, then actually that is the way that we are living. And so, you know, it gives us back that sort of sense of actually this is something that's under my control to some extent, the feeling that the small stuff matters.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Oh,
1: man, I read about 600, 700 books. (laughs) For, this, for the research in this book and I love them all so you know what can I say I tell you what I will say about this I really really value reading fiction so I, re- I obviously write non-fiction and I read a lot of non-fiction but I find that I am a better human being when I'm reading some fiction. It kind of takes me out of myself. Talking about meditation and easy ways to kind of get some mindfulness, it kind of brings my focus to one thing and stops the chatter in my mind. So I just finished reading Masin um, Hamid's Exit West, which is a very interesting book about refugees. And it was a beautiful, beautiful creation. So that was the last thing I read.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you. And how about a favourite tool?
1: Oh, man, I had a lot of those too. Well, I I do like tools that really help to lighten the cognitive load on my brain because, you know, we can only ever hold three or four things in mind at, at any given time, as you know, if you try and remember a list of seven things. So I really value software like Evernote, which allows you to not try and remember anything, but just to kind of dump it in and go back to it whenever you want. And to really just almost outsource your memory, outsource the, the sort of storage capacity of your brain. So yeah, Evernote has been a big thing for me in these last few years.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit?
1: Well, I've shared a lot of my habits mm-hmm. in this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know what I would add to the habits I've described here. I do have a habit, which we haven't talked about, which is to make sure that I treat seeing friends as as important as having a meeting so when you look at all the research on human connection it turns out that one of the most powerful things you can do to boost your own sense of well-being is to pay attention to the quality of your relationships and so I've done that for many years even when I was at McKinsey you know living the consultant life if I was seeing a friend I just treated it as a meeting and of course sometimes you move meetings but not very often and so I just give it that priority and know that it's as important for my sense of self and my ability to be at my best as anything else that I'm doing.
0: Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget or piece that you share in your trainings or speaking or, or in your book that has a whole lot of, kindle book highlights or retweets or that comes back to you again and again
1: <laughs> it's really interesting i mean people just love different parts of the book so there's no you know there's no specific there are loads of people who will say oh this thing that you say about you know the what's top of mind really shapes our perceptions of what seems to happen you know that gets retweeted a lot the the, the annie dillard quote that i mentioned gets retweeted a lot i think one of the things that people people say they like a lot is the the summaries at the end of each chapter which just summarize all of the um all of the the advice that's in the chapter i will say my brother actually recommends my book based on the fact that people don't even have to read it in order to be able to use it so that i think that aspect of my work seems to have resonated with people
0: (laughs) High praise for the family. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Do you have a final challenge or call to action that you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: That's a good final question. I think that the challenge or the opportunity, let's say, that I would put in front of people is just to notice when you are focused on what you can't control and to remember that you are going to you know potentially miss the things that you can control and that there's an enormous amount of power in saying okay i know that this or this is not great right now but what is there that I can control? That there might be one of those sort of smallest first steps that you can take that is indeed in your control. There might be something that's familiar to you or that you that you know for sure and that enables you to take that step. And it it might be that you can control your attitude even when everything around you is just incredibly annoying. You can decide to control your attitude and decide what your attitude wants to be. You know, you can say, okay this is all terrible, but what can I choose to learn from this? So I think it is that. It is that opportunity to focus on what we can control rather than things we can't. And that makes a huge difference to how every day feels.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Caroline, thank you so much for taking this time and sharing these perspectives. It's so useful and I can't wait to do some of them myself uh, right away from building the cues to ensuring that uh, even if 10 to 20 minutes of of slightly raised heart rate doesn't make me feel like a macho man, it makes a huge (laughs) impact for my energy. And so all this good stuff.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for the conversation. It's been great.
0: I love how Caroline was saying you can get a real dose of mindfulness that actually makes a meaningful difference from a single breath. And we've all got time for that. And I think that's powerful, useful. I've seen it in practice myself so i hope you find that and other tidbits here useful if you want to review the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that caroline referenced, that's over at awesome at your slash ep 244 and i hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already you'll catch our next guest it is stephen kotler he's talking about specifically having a good day in those flow zones what are the triggers and how to have more of them hope to catch you there peace